It's Wednesday, the 10th of November, 2021. I'm Jasra Roberts. I'll be your host for this evening, replacing Alakog, who's on his way to join us in Cape Town. I'm with my colleague, Nadia Swart. There's lots happening in the Mother City this week with the medium-term budget speech taking place tomorrow. There should be lots of talking points coming out of that. Alec will be in lockup for the first half of the day, and the second half will be producing content on business. So lots to look forward to in that department, and we will sure be reporting on it come the business power hour tomorrow. On the show tonight, our partners at the Financial Times, that's the FT of London, they bring us up to speed with all the global developments happening around the world in the financial markets. Very interestingly, to come out of the US, General Electric, one of the largest companies in the world, they're splitting up into three more focused entities. We're seeing this conglomerate model that used to be in fashion as a form of diversification for its, for investors lose interest. They're splitting it up into three more focused companies. So lots to come out of that from the FT. Then the main conversation of this evening is business founder Alec Hogg talking to Dr. Ali Bacher, business colleague and former protea Clive Eckstein and another f- former protea Adrian Caper. Today marks 30 years since South Africa broke through isolation. We were in apartheid for a number of years, as we all know. And as a result, our international cricket teams were unable to play against other uh, international counterparts. Today marks 30 years uh, since we broke out of isolation. A significant moment. And Alec talks to three uh, cricketing legends, that being Ali Bacher, Clive Eckstein and Adrian Kaper. And after that, our colleague in London, Linda van Tolberg, she has a very interesting, uplifting conversation with Andre Fulyun, the owner of Woodstock Breweries, who launched Mother Soup and have in partnership with the Great Commission United supplied more than 5 million meals since then. A really uplifting, great story to end the program. And my colleague nods for the best of Biz News. What are people reading to, listening to and watching on Biz News? So on the website, The Coalition Dilemma, How Not to Re-Empower a Wounded ANC. Our mailbox, it looks like government has no money left to pay any pensions and investments to avoid in 2022 are among the best read stories. On Biz News TV, yesterday's flash briefing, SPAR is the least overvalued SA food retailer and 500,000 Rand Investment Challenge. Pitfull Yoon versus Magnus Haystack are among the most popular videos with our community members. And on Business Radio on Spotify, early, exactly 30 years later, cricket insiders share the backstory to SA's spectacular return to international sport. Yesterday's Business Power Hour and Treasury One's Andres Lears as the RAND's volatility continues are the most accessed podcasts. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Nadja Swartney. Here are the news headlines. Coalition talks between parties continue with the kingmaker in Gauteng, Action SA, in active talks with the Democratic Alliance and the economic freedom fighters. Action SA leader Herman Mashaba left the DA in 2019, citing the election of Helen Ziller as federal chair as the reason. His concern was reportedly that under Zilla, inequality and poverty would not be a priority. While Mashaba considers his past with the DA water under the bridge, 
He says that negotiations will put the poor front and center. The party is also in talks with the EFF, though it says it has some reservations so far. Action SA will not work with the ANC, and the DA refuses to work with the ANC or the EFF. While it is no secret that ESCOM's power grid is incredibly vulnerable and under strain, revelations from the group this week showed exactly how fine a line it is treading daily. So much so that a power trip in Zambia had a cascading effect on the local power supply, which ultimately led to stage four load shedding hitting this week. The imported power from Zambia is typically stable and gives ESCOM room to breathe. However, for the relatively short period it was out, ESCOM's hydro and gas solutions could barely cover the shortfall. Experts say ESCOM has to be more conservative with its emergency solutions, while worries over diesel shortages persist. And ESCOM CEO Andre Dureta says he will not resign of his own accord because there's no use putting a new jockey on a dead horse. The CEO was responding to calls from unions and business groups that he fall on his sword over load shedding, with 2021 being the worst year for blackouts on the record. Dureta said he serves at the behest of the ESCOM board, and if they want him gone, that is a decision they must make. However, he said that it's more important to have continuity in management, as the many executive changes in the last decade have only contributed to the company's instability. Now it's back to Justin for the market report. The JSE All Share Index is slightly lower at 68,700. In the currency markets, the rand is stronger against all the major currencies to 15 rand 18 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 50 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 54 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,826 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will cost you around 29,000 Rand. Brent crude is also flat at $85.10 a barrel. And Bitcoin is trading at more than a million Rand per coin. In the financial news, Johan Rupert's investment holding company, Remgro, and South Africa's largest mobile operator, Vodacom, have inked a multi-billion Rand deal to combine their fiber businesses, a move that improve access to high-speed internet for South Africa's lower income income consumers. The deal involves Vodacom injecting 6 billion rand in cash and selling its fiber network to Community Investment Ventures Holding, of which Rembrandt holds 57%. This would lead to the mobile operator's fiber operations combining with Dark Fiber Africa, South Africa's largest fiber-to-fiber home network, Bomatel. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, November 10th, and this is your FT News Briefing. One of America's biggest conglomerates is breaking up, and Xi Jinping is making a play for his third term as China's president. Plus the strategy of divesting from companies over climate change or selling off investments in fossil fuel producers has finally reached the asset management world. The last few years, there's kind of a growing realization among some big investors that the current model of engagement is not working. It's not driving change fast enough. But does it work? We'll take a look. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. One of America's most famous multinationals, General Electric, is breaking up. Yesterday, the company said it would split itself into three separate companies. One will focus on healthcare, one on aviation, the other on energy. Investors seem to like this. GE's share price ended the day up more than 2.5%. The FT's U.S. business editor, Andrew Edgecliff Johnson, says the idea of a sprawling, diverse conglomerate has lost its sheen. It's become more and more clear that the diversification 
that Jack Welch championed in his time as CEO in the last decades became its biggest problem. Investors found it very, very hard to see what was going on in this business. And then management found it very, very hard to remedy the underperformance of the business. Edge, what does this say about conglomerates as a business model in general? Does it say anything? This isn't the only company that's trying to simplify itself right now. And really, the trend has been for several years away from conglomerates. It has been towards simplification. It's been towards unleashing individual assets, letting them out to fend for themselves in the markets. And I think this is a pretty profound shift in the consensus in American business. And it's also happening at in Asia, in the UK, and different parts of the world. There has been a strong shift away from the idea that central management can ever be so brilliant that they can compensate for all of the downsides that conglomerates bring. That's not to say that opinion won't swing again. We've seen the conglomerate fashion sort of ebb and flow in the past years. But I think right now, this is very much a reflection of the fact that industrial businesses, they're finding it harder to get the attention of the markets. They're no longer the biggest companies out there as they used to be. And they have to remedy that by having a much more focused story to tell investors. So you mentioned that this is happening in Asia. And just earlier this week, we saw Toshiba in Japan come under pressure from activist investors to split its company into three parts, like General Electric. Did GE have an Elliott management type pushing them to make this move too? It has very much had activist investors pushing for precisely this strategy. And I would say that you know, Larry Culp, the CEO, has signed off on this strategy. It's not the first CEO to identify the problem. There has been a willingness to slim GE down, even going back to Jeff Hilmelt, who was running the business uh, for 16, 17 years after 9-11. Um, and it became very apparent to Immelt around the time of the financial crisis that he would have to simplify particularly the financial services business. But he also made some acquisitions which turned out to be critically problematic. But this has come about very much because of investor pressure. I have to say the activists that we've heard from are pretty pleased. Andrew Edgecliff Johnson is the FT's U.S. business editor. We could see a historic moment in China this week. President Xi Jinping has summoned hundreds of top Communist Party officials to Beijing for an annual meeting. This plenum of the party's central committee is expected to approve a resolution that would pave the way for Xi's third term in power. DFT's Beijing bureau chief Tom Mitchell explains the significance of this resolution. The resolution to outsiders, including myself, is going to be really boring turgid party speak, slogging through that thing will be a chore. However, it's the politics behind it that are interesting. And the politics behind it are essentially this. For most of its existence, the Chinese Communist Party, certainly since taking power in 1949, did not have a peaceful transition of power really until 2003. And that's when Jiang Zemin handed over power to Hu Jintao. So Xi Jinping has decided that after 10 years in power, he is not going to hand over to a successor. So that's what this is all about. If you are not going to hand over after 10 years, as your predecessors have done, you'd better have a good reason. And basically what this document will do is it'll lay out his case for staying in power. This is a really important historical moment. 
This is why I will be staying for at least another five, if not 10 years. Tom Mitchell is the FT's Beijing bureau chief. So when COVID-19 was surging last year, top managers at the British asset manager Aviva held a virtual meeting to talk about a big threat to the value of their investments. But it wasn't COVID. It was climate change. And they did something really unusual. They told companies, they told about 30 big carbon intensive companies, if these carbon intensive companies didn't pull up their socks effectively, then they would start selling out of those businesses across both the equities and the fixed income holdings. That's the FT's investment correspondent, Attracta Mooney. This meeting she reported on was really unusual for the asset management industry, but it's part of a growing trend. It's really unusual for a big asset manager. So the divestment movement, um, this idea of selling out of fossil fuel producers has been gaining momentum over the last decade. And we've seen lots of universities come under pressure about it. We've seen lots of foundations and religious orders think about doing these things across their investment pots. But traditional asset managers have been much slower to react, especially among mainstream big companies. They maybe will sell out of some of the coal, intensive coal stocks, but they won't sell out of general fossil fuel producers. And for Aviva to do that and to say it would apply across its entire portfolio is, is really, really rare. But Attracta, as you've reported, Aviva's decision is a sign of change. Uh, what has changed over the past few years? So there's a few things that have that have happened that have made the investment industry quite wary about the risks of climate change. So the signing of the Paris Agreement, which aims to limit global temperature rises, that has propelled kind of the fear that climate change could actually become a huge investment risk for asset managers and that they could be left with stranded assets, that's assets that are very hard to sell. So over the last few years, we've seen asset managers increasingly talk about climate change as an investment risk. The last few years, there's kind of a growing realization among some big investors that the status quo and the current model of engagement is not working, is not driving change fast enough. And actually that if we are to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, we'll have to get much, much tougher. And so what we've seen now is that some big mainstream investors are starting to consider this idea of divestment, of selling their stocks in these companies, even when this would not necessarily be their first choice to do. So Tractor, what kind of impact could this have on the companies they divest from? So it it could have a huge impact. Um, If more big traditional investors start talking about divestment, it means for companies, their plans will have to become much more robust. So, you know, you're risking losing very big traditional long-term shareholders, which for lots of companies is not ideal. They could end up being owned by much more short-term hedge funds or private hands, which they might not feel is the right process for them. And so what you change is you change your shareholder base and that shareholder base, if you've had a good relationship with your shareholders and you've had long-term support from them, and all of a sudden you've got a much more short-term shareholder, that kind of changes how um, you're being financed effectively. But still, if there's already market for these shares in fossil fuel companies that asset managers sell, even if it's short-term investors, doesn't that raise questions about how effective divesting can actually be? 
there's two issues with divestment. One is that whether we tackle a systemic problem, a, a problem for the world um, around climate change. And then there is a more immediate personal issue, which is what does climate change mean for all of our portfolios? If climate change really does have an impact on investment returns, then our retirement incomes and our savings could be put at risk if asset managers aren't taking action around divestment. And that's probably the more immediate risk for lots of us in the sense that if the asset managers are too slow to react, we could have hits to our portfolios. Attracta Mooney is the FT's investment correspondent. Thanks, Attracta. Thank you. Before we go, one last reminder about our amazing, gotta try it, 30-day free trial of the FT's social governance newsletter. It's called Moral Money. Not only do you get the latest inside news about ESG investing, you also get a free month of access to all of FT.com. Everything. Sky's the limit. There's a lot of great journalism you're not going to want to miss, so visit FT.com slash COP26podcast to get started. We'll also have a link in the show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. This interview is brought to you by First Rand. For business. When the country went into lockdown in March 2020, unemployment soared and families started experiencing hunger. A Cape Town brewer realized that some of the largest kettles in the city could be repurposed from brewing beer to making soup on an industrial scale. Andre Fulun, the owner of Woodstock Brewery, launched Mother Soup and have in partnership with the Great Commission United, supplied more than 5 million meals since then. Fillion told Business that the project did not stop when alcohol sales continued. It has become a sustainable project that is still feeding many people in the area in and around Cape Town. Hi, Andre. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having us. We thought about the idea in March, and we got it up and going in April. So what we did was, at the beginning of lockdown last year, we weren't allowed to trade or produce alcohol. And there were lockdown restrictions in place. But if you had good reason and you were feeding and providing emergency services, we were allowed to go to work. So I had an idle factory and an idle team that we decided to put to good use. Um, and my staff and I started a soup kitchen. So we started out by going to the vegetable market early in the morning and buying a very good value, very large bulk, sort of second grade vegetables. We got a lot of volunteers that um, would come in and our whole restaurant floor upstairs of the brewery was repurposed into vegetable preparation stations. Quite soon after that, we drilled two big core drill holes into the brew, brew house from a kitchen directly above the house. And it just made the sort of workflow processes much easier, loading what was then about four tons of vegetables a day. How many people were you feeding at that stage? So I think the record number of meals we've prepped in a day is over 50,000. But a normal run rate would have been 
what we consider a single batch, which is 7,500 liters. And that we calculate at 330 milliliters of soup and two or three or four slices of bread is a portion of food. We then try, depending on what funding is available, to increase the calorific value with protein and with um, vegetable oil, fat, to make it a little bit more nutritional. So in full lockdown, when we weren't producing beer, we were doing four days a week at least of about 7,500 liters a day. So we were getting close to 100,000 meals a week. Now with, with the fact that the liquor is available for sale um, and the restaurants open again, it's still quite quiet. Demand hasn't come back to what it was. So we, at the moment, we're, we're producing soup two or three days a week. And then we do a deep clean and we're either brewing once or twice a week. The good thing is that we managed to get the attention of some very generous benefactors who saw the partnership that we've done and how we've used the brewing technology. And we've, we've actually built a permanent soup kitchen with greater functionality using the brewing technology and sort of mechanical engineering behind our brewery. Um, and that'll go into operation in, a, in about a month's time, less, hopefully less than a month. And that's right near the Epping market, vegetable market, which is also very much closer to our recipient soup kitchens. We've got about 80 active soup kitchens and transport, obviously, when we're transporting 7,000, 8,000 liters a day, we're talking about seven or eight tons plus bread is an issue. So being closer to the recipient groups is important. When you started, what was the need like and how did it escalate and how did it go down again? Or can you just give us a pattern? Give you an idea. Cape Town is very much a hospitality location. So with the closure of restaurants, with the closure of vacation type businesses, wineries, suddenly people that were, you know, already a lot of people were on the breadline already living off of, you know, the kindness of other family or friends or whatever, suddenly, you know, everybody became unemployed or just a very large portion of the population lost their income. So we saw demand ramp up very quickly. And hunger presented itself quite quickly because, you know, the government payments hadn't gone into effect. People that didn't have savings suddenly lost their income line. The, 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 the payments that were made to employees only came into effect, you know, months afterwards. So there was an initial need that, that sprung up very quickly. And what we've seen is there has been some improvement in some areas, but the economy is still struggling. There are a lot more people unemployed now than were before lockdowns. So, so the demand is still there. And, you know, obviously with that in mind and the focus, actually the focus of the nonprofit that we've partnered with, we've partnered with a, with a nonprofit called Great Commission United, GCU, for this um, Mother Soup project. And they're the ones that led the initiative for funding a permanent soup kitchen that we're busy staffing and fitting out now. And GCU have 20 years 
looking after the children and the schools that don't qualify for SASA grants and also post-school programs, extramural activities for sport and extramural teaching, you know, running libraries. But also now with the COVID, they got an, another mandate, which was to ensure that feeding was, was happening with, with their groups. They came on as a recipient group to begin with. They then upped their commitment and channeled quite a bit of their funding our way. And now we've got a permanent partnership and, yeah, well, hopefully this, this will continue. And what we actually want is once we've built the Cape Town one, because, you know, if you've got a vegetable soup base that can be used and augmented with anything else that can be added, it's a very versatile base. But it also provides a low glycemic index, healthy food. So what we want is to roll this out further. You really build it into something else. So have you got a figure? How many people have you fed from April to now? We're on about 5 million. 5 million meals provided mostly, when I say mostly, I mean like 99.5% for free. But in the beginning, for example, with GCU, they used to buy from us for their recipient soup kitchens. And we'd then use their funds, which we would also then contribute into our coffers to buy more vegetables. So in the beginning, we started it out by using our social media and we promised a beer fest and a, a print of a relatively famous artist friend of mine. And I'm actually just going to get you a, a copy of the print that Richard did. I'll just be able to show you. Oh, that's the Rainbow Nation. Our Rainbow Nation of people here represents also the GCU logo. This is actually the shape of our brewery logo and brewing pot. Mm -hmm. And this over here is the golden, our golden river. And these are our little trucks with flow bins, with bins that we deliver the soup in. And then there's a little blue ribbon bread truck. Blue ribbon bread donates a thousand loaves of bread every day to go along with the soup. We gave one of these to everyone that donated. The original went to the biggest donor. And this is how we started. And we got, it must have been over a million rand in donations just from that. A lot of corporates. And then we kept on doing it. And we've kept three or four corporates, um, the, the Guernsey government, and then a few trusts, family trusts, as anchor donors. And also we've we've had sort of, Vegetable puree provided by the Rhodes Food Group. The Kerry Group has provided some cream, some uh, vegetable-based cream and uh, flavoring. So a very flavorsome stock base, soup stock base, delicious. And this is how we've put together and we've worked with nutritionists and dietitians and chefs to come up with uh, palatable. Our first soup coming out of the brewing vessels was very mediocre. But at the moment, it's delicious. This interview was brought to you by First Rand. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And 
by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. For great wines at the right price, delivered direct to your door anywhere in the country, look no further than the BizNews Wine Shop. Go directly to www.biznewsshop.com for a quick, easy solution to curated wines with the BizNews community front of mind. Well, it's exactly 30 years today that South Africa re-entered international sport after a long period of isolation. We need to celebrate this, not least because my colleague Clive Eckstein was intimately involved. And we'll also be hearing from a, a former teammate of Clive's, Adrian Caper. The man behind it all was Ali Bacher, legendary Ali Bacher, a former Springbok cricket captain, ran cricket in South Africa for many, many years. Ali, there has to be a backstory to this because we're now in 2021. So 30 years ago, uh, would have been 1991, three years before the election. And yet you managed to get a team to go to India and to actually step out there and, and to play and get South Africa back into international sport. How did you pull it off? The starting point is that the ANC, I think they were impressed with the unification of South African credit for the first time and the development program which is taking place in the townships. And Tybin Becky, to his credit, he saw that we were going in the right direction and he first sent Steve Schwetti with me in May of 91 to go and meet the black cricketing countries and to tell them the ANCR is going to support our readmission, which happened. So we're back in the ICC but we never spoke of participation in cricket. We were just happy to be back in the world of cricket as family members. And I remember phoning Jeff Dakin, who was then president. I said, look, Jeff, we've never been to the subcontinent. We've never been to Sheikh India, Pakistan. I think we, we need to go introduce ourselves and meet uh, their respective presidents and vice presidents. So off we went. Jeff... Chris McAdoo, Vice President, the late Percy Son, and myself. We first went to Sri Lanka. We then went to Pakistan. And then we went back to India. And as we arrived in Mumbai, the headlines, Pakistan pull out of touring India. It was supposed to take place the next weekend. We were none the wiser. So we got on a plane to go to Calcutta. And that was our first visit to meet Mr. Dalmia. He was like the Secretary General of Indian Cricket, but Head of Cricket in that particular area. And he saw an open ER. And within a second, he said, listen, you chaps must replace Pakistan and come to India. So we then went to a couple of places, and we came back to South Africa. And on the way, we stopped in Nairobi, because they were associate members of World Cricket. And we spent a night there, and I shared a room with the late Percy's son. And he said to me, Ali, we're going too fast. We're now members of the ICC, and the next thing we're going to tour India. <laughs> so I got on the phone, phoned the late Dean Shwetty, who became really a great personal friend of mine. I, I miss him dearly. And I said, listen, Steve, 
We've got the situation. Percy's nervous. So Steve takes the phone uh, and he says, give the phone to, to Percy. So I give it to Percy. And Steve is now in Cape Town, talks to him for half an hour. I got no idea what he said. Percy puts down the phone and he says, we're going to India. So we come back to Joburg. It's a Sunday afternoon. The United Board are all there to meet us. And we tell them what's happened. India wants us to come to the end of, next, end of the week. So the interesting part was the previously SACB members all said we're going to India because of Steve. And the previously SACB members, mainly white, said, no, we're going too fast. Anyhow, the majority prevailed. And on the Monday morning, I got a phone call from Mr. late Mr. Sindhya, who was their president. And he said, Ali, look, it's all great, but we have a problem. And I said, what is the problem? He said, look, your team's going to be all white. It's going to cause problems. So I put it on the phone. I phoned the late Peter van der who was convener selected. And I said, listen, we've got to have four young cricketers to come with the team, two white, two black. And the late Hansi Cronier was one of them. So we started preparations on the Monday morning. And on Thursday evening, we left for Calcutta. We got to Calcutta. We then went to our hotel, and it's estimated that over 100,000 people lined the streets of Calcutta to welcome South Africa to India. It was the most extraordinary day in my life. Then we had the game on Sunday. Let the two of them take over from now. <laughs> Clive, when did you hear that you were gay? So Ali goes to India. Presumably all the cricketers in South Africa were excited to hear that we were going back into international sport, or did you know at that stage? We didn't really know. We went literally from playing club cricket one weekend to Calcutta the following weekend. Um, and Capes played in the game, and uh, I remember walking out before the game, and that stadium is incredible. It was, I don't know, 80,000, 90,000 people. is a lot of people. Wow. And the Indian fans are just crazy about cricket and the noise and it was unbelievable we you know what doc says is there's no warm-up game i think we had one or two practices played in front of ninety thousand people at an incredible stadium um, something unbelievable adrian when did you hear that you were going on tour you're being a farmer surely you had quite a lot of uh, things to organize <laughs> Yeah, that was a long time back. I can't quite remember, but I must just say, it's the first time I've heard that story from Ali. And it actually just gives me goosebumps. And it must have been, it's just amazing, the whole story. Um, in, the, in our winter, before this all happened, we had all the stories of readmission and so on were coming out. And then to, we got back and obviously we went across. But as Ali re reflects, we... Hundred thousand. There were millions of people lining the streets. I remember putting my arm out and touching hands with the people on the streets and the hotel. It was just thousands and thousands of people. You couldn't actually go and walk out in the streets because it was there were just so many people who would mob you. It was it was just an, an incredible experience, and one wonders why and how why did happen that we were welcomed uh, like that. Uh, but it was just incre an incredible experience. 
did they know anything about you, the Indian fans? In other words, did they did they point at you and say, "Ah, oh, there's Caper and Clive"? They pointed <laughs> you. Ah, oh, there's X team. <laughs> I think if they knew anyone, it would have been Alan Donald, who played overseas in, in England, um, and maybe and Kepler Vessels, who and Kepler, and that's about it. Uh, they might have heard of Clive Rice, but no, they didn't know us. But what they who they did know about fairly soon was Jonty. They loved his fielding; <laughs> they absolutely loved it. Clive, when you uh, went out into the crowds, were you, could you do that? Could you actually interact with the people? We stopped along the way a whole lot of times. It took forever to get from the airport to the hotel. And we would stop and Ricey, Doc, um, Mike Proctor would get out and go and talk. And there was, the streets were just full of people. It was incredible. Adrian's 100% right. You know, you just saw these people. It, it, you could not expect what, what happened. It was, was unbelievable. Ali, why were they so welcoming? If you consider South Africa was this pariah internationally, and you would have imagined that in most countries there would have been at least some antagonism. You know, the Indian people are famous for their passion for cricket. They know the game inside out. They know who's playing for New Zealand 30 years ago, for the West Indies 40 years ago. And to the best of my knowledge, they knew a lot about South African cricket, the past history, its failures and successes. So I'm not surprised by the reception that we got. That that country is cricket, cricket mad. But the two moments on that first day that I'll never forget uh, we won the toss, and we decided to bat. And Chef says, help me. Who opened the batting with Jimmy Cook? Andrew. Andrew yes. Hudson. Andrew Hudson. Andrew Hudson. So I was on the field there. And as they walked past to go to the crease, I had one look at Andrew, and I said to myself, he's finished. The first <laughs> ball on the stumps, he is gone. So true to form, couple there takes the opening over. The third ball's on the middle stump. He's gone. He's finished. He couldn't handle this crowd. <laughs> and the, the second point is that Alan Donald bowled superbly. Yeah. I mean, he, he got did. five wickets. And it was only mm-hmm. the greatness of the young Sachin Tendulkar, who got over 70, that won the game for them. We would have beaten them. And yeah. Yeah. at the end of the match, you know, which is customary in South Africa, you go into the opposition's change room, congratulate them, shake a hand, yeah, shake a hand, yeah. And I went into the change room and I went up to Sachin Tendulkar and I congratulated him on a great innings. And I'm proud to say that to this day. We're still very good friends. I've got his private cell phone number. And he's not only a great, great creator, but one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. His feet on the ground. It's never gone to his head, uh, and he is somebody that I'm proud to be associated with. Adrian, you didn't lose your middle stump in the third ball, I presume. <laughs> no, what, what did, uh, did something controversial did arise out of the game, and that was the, the whole thing of reverse swing. Because we in South Africa, we'd never, we'd never experienced it. We'd heard whisperings about reverse swing and what happened. And we'd always, we, yeah, we always played in the last, 10 overs or so, you knew you were going to capitalize. If you had wickets in hand, you could score the runs. 
But boy, Manoj Prabhaka and Kapil Dev, the older the ball got, the more it swung. And it just became so difficult to score runs. And it really was, it was just swinging more and more. There was a bit of speak about it, but it was a way of cricket in the time. And it was, we had to try and adapt and uh, it, it was quite difficult for us. Adrian got 43 and Kepler 50. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it was incredible. The mist when we got to the ground over the the field was something else. And, and there's a great photo of, of Jimmy and Andrew walking out to bat. And I can only imagine what Hutters went through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did he do after that, uh, Ali? Look, yeah, the, the second match we got was at Gwalior, we got outclassed. But then the last match was in Delhi. And uh, our team really came out sh- shining then. They scored a very big score. I remember uh, Ravi Shashi got over 100. And I recall that even though he got 100, the crowd booed him. And years later, I asked Ravi, I said, Ravi, why, why did they boo you? He got 100 for India. You see, that's Indian cricket. When Mumbai plays Delhi, it's, it's hatred. It's as simple as that. So we had a big total, and I remember uh, Kepler got runs. Uh, Peter Kirsten batted very well. And I think the third person uh, was Adrian. Was Adrian. Adrian got <laughs> runs. And we beat him. We beat him convincingly. I think we, we chased a target of nearly 300, and we yeah. beat him. So look, mm. uh, and it, it was quite interesting because that night uh, both teams stayed at the same hotel and the Indian players were on their way to Australia. They had no beers. We had a lot of beers. So we joined forces together and consumed all the beers that particular night. But two things. The second game, we didn't have a practice beforehand. Our kit didn't arrive. It arrived <laughs> later. So we didn't even practice before the game in Gwalior, um, right. which I don't know if that was standard at the time or the kit <laughs> went missing, so we didn't have a practice. And what stuck in my mind from the Gwalior game, because that was the game I played, is they used to throw, the crowd used to throw firecrackers at you <laughs> when you're on the boundary. And all the youngsters got sent to the boundary. So XD and Capo, whoever, and Rice and Vessels and Kirsten stayed in the inner ring. And I remember it, they threw a cracker and it didn't go off. So I walked back, I picked it up and put it in my pocket. It's not the cleverest thing to do. (laughs) But those were the sorts of things that went on. And then the final game, there was an athletics track. If you go onto YouTube, you can go and have a look. There's an athletics track that runs around inside the field of play. So the boundary was on the other side of the athletics track. And Mandraka got 100 as well. Um, a really good hundred, and the noise in New Delhi was just unbelievable. <laughs> and then Capes and Peter Kirsten, I think you guys put on over a hundred to get us over the line, and you know we walked away with our first ever ODI win. Adrian, did you think that that South African cricket was good enough to go to India and win? Sure. Um, you know, I don't even think that was part of uh, contemplated in my book. Uh, it was just the excitement of this whole, we're back in here. And I think after that, subsequently we went to the World Cup and I think uh, personally I started to say, gee whiz, here we are, 
these are all the best cricketers in the world and you've been reading about them in Wisdom Magazine and all everywhere. Am I good enough? And there's suddenly a little bit of doubt started to creep in. But fortunately, we had players of experience, people who'd been there, Kirsten and Vessels and Rice and Cook. They'd been there, done that. And I think it, it was useful to have those people to give us a sort of belief, mental belief that, yes, you're good enough, we can beat these people. And I think, but it was more the excitement of it. It was just get out there and go and play. Um, and, and it took a off, but later on the realization, okay, this is the real thing. Now we're back in here and now we've got to play against the best. Ali, how long was the isolation for? Well, it, it started in 1970. You know, we beat the Australians 4-0 here. And we were due to go to England that English summer. But I knew we would never go because Harold Wilson was Prime Minister, Labour government, and right from the beginning they said there will be no tour. And I knew there'd be no tour. We were then due to go to Australia, 71, 72, and I knew again that tour would never take place. The reason being uh, Bob Hawke uh, was in charge of the Labour movement and he made it very clear if you chaps come to Australia and you land in Perth, that'll be it. There'll be no more petrol, so don't waste your time. Don't come to Australia. And so that tour never took place. And the interesting fact is, it's a long story, but in the mid-90s, I kind of had an interaction with Bob Hall, and we became very good friends. In fact, when Australia came for their first tour to South Africa, uh, that would have been... 93-94, I invited him to come and be the guest of honor speaker, and he spoke superbly. We became very close friends, and sadly, he passed away recently. Doc, I still want to know how you filled the plane, the chartered plane that went to India to take us. Clive, let me put it like to you like this. I've had some tough assignments in my life in cricket. I've tried to do my best to work for those problems out. I've had some easy assignments. <laughs> that was the easiest assignment of my career. career. How did you do it? Just went public. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I moved my offices to my house. I moved my second figure, and we just took calls on that tour. It was the easiest thing. It filled up in half an hour, I think. Fantastic. And who joined you? No, we tried to give it to people that we knew in sport. Uh, I remember George Rosenbach wanted to come, and he brought a party with him. We knew George. He did a lot for sport in this country. So, so we were carefully selective. We didn't say yes to everybody, but it filled up in no time. And a lot of our board members came. Uh, well, our team came there. A lot of the media came. It, it was an extraordinary situation. But when, when we got to Gwalior for the second game, our Luggage came late, and the hotel that we booked into was too small. It couldn't fit all the South Africans. And I remember I shared a room initially with Chris Gibbons from the media, and the next thing there were knock-ons on my door, and I think about 15 people ended up on the floor sleeping in my room on that particular night before the game. Adrian, I've got to ask you one question, and this is most people won't know this. You've got to tell us about the bus trip from our plane to the terminal building in New Delhi. 
Ali might be able to sleep a little bit better, but he was behind the cage. Oh dear. Well, uh, we'd had a bit of fun, and uh, we'd had a bit of, uh, we'd been received at some castle after the game at Gwalior, and um, we all. I was in good spirits, and we landed at Delhi, and the bus was waiting outside. It's not really a bus because you, you not you know, no seating. Everybody had to stand, and I went to the driver and I said, "Out, I'm driving." And there was a mesh, wire mesh between the driver and the passengers. So I'm getting the seat and he's sitting next to me, big smile on his face. And Ollie's got his fingers through the mess. He's, Adrian, Adrian. And I'm just laughing. Anyway, we fill the bus and off we go round. And <laughs> the more the further I'm driving, the more panic there's in Ollie's. Adrian. <laughs> Anyhow, we're alive safely, having clipped a few Boeing wings or just nearly clipping a few Boeing wings, but it was quite a quite a fun drive. All I remember, all I remember is Doc Adrian. It's enough now. <laughs> you just keep driving. Wonderful memories. And what was the reaction when you got back to South Africa from particularly the ANC who and Steve Chueta, who would have presumably felt that there had to be some risk in giving you the thumbs up? You know, that's, I, I can't explain that, but, you know, that is most, one of the most remarkable sporting events this country has ever been involved in. I mean, just look at the politics. It's 1991. All right, the ANC are back in the country. Uh, they're now on Zambia. There's the release of Nelson Mandela. Talks start now. Nobody knew how it would end up. There was talk of a revolution. And despite that, in 1991, Clive Baker, Steve Sweaty, told the ANC to support us, get back to world cricket. I mean, we only had democracy in 1994. Mm. And I don't think the creditors that came into South African cricket after 94 do not understand this, do not understand how fortunate they were that despite all these political upheavals, we were able, the United Creditors of South Africa from 1991, to get the ANC support and continued support. I think it's absolutely remarkable. And every creditor that played for South Africa in the 90s should never forget that fact. Ali, it's a, it's a theory, but I'd love to get your thought on it. The readmission, and particularly the role that the cricketers played in bringing to the white population of South Africa uh, how different it is playing on an international stage rather than provincially, suggested that that helped in, in swinging the referendum, which opened the way for democracy in South Africa. What's your thought on that? Look, I've got one thought, and Adrian will know better than me. When we went to Australia for our first, for the World Cup, at that particular time, FW declared there was a referendum on, you know, should we go this route to the ANC, whatever, whatever. And I remember very clearly the our South African cricket team at the World Cup came out publicly to support a new dimension for South Africa as a country. And to the credit of all those cricketers in Australia, I think that had a huge impact on particularly the white community in South Africa. So I'm sure there's something to that. Adrian, did you guys get that feedback at the World Cup around the time of the referendum? Not not really. You know, we were, we were very much 
with a cricket focused. Um, obviously, we made a, stand, a stance and, and, and we publicly said so. And we uh, there was a lot of photographs with us putting uh, having our vote and having our say. But we just were just hoping and praying that it would go the right direction. So it was very difficult for us being in Australia to actually experience what was happening back home in South Africa. Ali, it, it has to have had some kind of an impact. Yeah. And I, I just want to recall that, Max, how do you remember that first game against Australia in Sydney, Sydney Creek Ground, famous ground, the first ball of the match, <laughs> Alan Donald bowls to Jeff Mars. He doesn't get a slight nick. He almost breaks his bat. You could have heard the edge noise in New Zealand. And then the bloke doesn't walk, and the umpire gives him not out. I mean, can you believe it? I mean, that was a talking point for the next 24 hours throughout South Africa and Australia. I think the umpire froze. He has to have froze, and because it was so blatant, and he just, there's no way the first ball of the World Cup that South Africa can run up and buy, get a get a w- Australian wicket. It can't happen. And I think he literally <laughs> froze. But it was, I mean, it was just ridiculous. Uh, it was one of the worst decisions ever. But uh, there, there's no doubt he froze on it. But anyway, at least we won. And it was a huge statement for South Africa, that, I, I believe. I think we won by eight wickets, Adrian. We gave them a snack. Yeah, Vesselson, uh, Kepler and, and Peter Kirsten both played really well. Um, and I think we bowled them out for somewhere around 170, somewhere 60, 170. So it wasn't a big total, but the way they went about it was just admiral and really professional. Uh, superb. You know, it was, a, it was a real clinical demolition. Ali said a little earlier that it, it was a surprise, certainly with the uh, the rapidity with which South Africa went back into the international arena. When you were growing up, when you were playing perhaps uh, your first provincial games, were there any thoughts in your mind that one day you might be able to play international cricket? Um, you know, I, I suppose not, because when I started provincial cricket, which was in 1978, just after school, and and we just, I just was playing for the love of playing, and you... I just loved cricket and played, and the next thing I was playing for Western Province and and out there. But but Ali was always full of surprises. Um, I just did my last year of university, and I was busy working on the farm. I think it was February, and I was in the orchards. And my father came around. He said, "Congratulations!" I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "No, you've been selected for the South African under twenty three side to play against the Rebel English side." And that was the first of the rebel tours, which went on for a decade. But then I, I, I'm also sure that those tours, which Ali kept springing on us, which was with uh, um, England, then Sri Lanka, then the West Indies, then Australia, the whole lot of them, were also part of keeping the South Africans, uh, the whole of South African public, aware of what we were missing out on. And so when you get back to that referendum, sport actually had such a major role. It definitely does have a major role. As, as you, as a young guy going on this tour, did it ever occur to you before the tour that you might be playing international cricket, proper international cricket one day? No, you grew up wanting to play in those days for Transvaal. And your heroes were Rice, Pollock, Cook and the likes. 
and then international crickets here. And um, it really was a massive, massive adjustment for me as a young cricketer to going from playing club cricket and provincial cricket into the international stage. And often you look back at it and you realise what a, a massive tour that first tour was. You know, you go there, there's no practice. There were 10, only person who had played in India before who played in ODR was Kepler. Everyone else was on debut. You had experience in Ross and Cook and Kirsten. Alan had had a bit of experience in England, but you hadn't played in those conditions, different ball. It was a huge ask. We've got huge talent in our country, and it was shown what happened going to the World Cup and the performance of the team and then into international cricket. And the resilience that mm. uh, South Africa's always had. Last word from you, Ali. If you look back now, 30 years later, are you satisfied that potential has been fulfilled? Yeah, look, I'd, I'd have to be honest. I, I, I'm a bit anxious about our team next few years. Uh, you know, we have been blessed since 91. Some outstanding teams, great world players. I look at the current team. And one's got to give them credit that with all the problems outside the playing field coming from South Africa, I think they did very well and were unlucky not to get to the semi-final. So well done to them. But to be honest, from a playing point of view, I'm a little bit anxious, mainly from the batting side, that's a batting. You know, where South African credit was so strong over the 30 years that at 7, 8 and 9, we had Bowser, Pollock, Kluza. We had debts, and we don't have that debt today, which is worrying me. But my last point is, and this is to you, you, Adrian, when Australia came back to South Africa, 93-94, we had a one-day match dancing at Centurion. (laughs) You played. Do you remember how many sixes you scored that day? And I'll tell you why. Um, In that game, no. No. uh, I do remember the last over, but not well, the game. I, all I remember, you hitting some unbelievable big sixes, one after the next. They never stopped coming. And you <laughs> frightened the Australians because that night or the next day, I got a phone call from Chief Officer of Australian Crew to congratulate us. And he, I remember him saying something with the left leg caper. He's terrified us. Does, does he always back up us? Ali, <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever was going to happen was going to happen quickly, eh? <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being with us. From me, Justin Roberts, and the rest of the business team, we'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.